Scripture states that long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things and through whom also He created the world. His Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's from Hebrews chapter 1. This is Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This Jesus is our focus from the Gospel of Mark in the weeks between Christmas and Easter. So if you want to take your Bible or take take one from the pew in front of you or if you have one of the journals, um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 in the journal that's page 34 and in the pew Bible that's page 841. So you can go ahead and turn there. Mark moves fast. Right? We've talked about that. He uses words like immediately, right away. He moves fast and is full of action, and chapter 6 does not disappoint. Right? This chapter is a series of, of growth for the disciples of Jesus in the kingdom of God, and there's actually six growth points throughout the chapter, and we're going to jump right into those today. So if you have already found Mark chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1, verses 1 to 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his old household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. So this is, this is pretty remarkable. Jesus has has just raised a dead child. That was the end of last week. And now in his hometown, there's just this huge lack of faith. right? And so he just heals a few people. But this first growth point, God stretches me. Right? God stretches us. Jesus returns home, and those who are most comfortable with him and knowledgeable of him are the ones who reject him. right? They knew him from his childhood right isn't this the carpenter's son don't we know his 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 mother don't we know his brother and his brothers and his sisters don't we we know him so where did he get all this teaching right and they're astonished at his teaching they they can't deny the good works he's done they're astonished by it but astonishment is not enough to believe faith is required for belief and growth right the people in Nazareth, they knew Jesus' history. All of it. They knew his upbringing, right? his family, his vocation. Those of you that have, have lived in a community for a while, you know the kids. 
You know, when they become adults, right? You know them. You've just been around them. You've watched them grow. And so when they heard his teaching, they were astonished and, and couldn't connect in their minds, where is this coming from, right? How, isn't this Jesus that we knew growing up? They were comfortable in their understanding of Jesus. They were comfortable viewing him as the kid who grew up. But it was pushing into them to accept him as the Savior and Lord that he is. Right? So Last week we saw people with comfortable lives ask Jesus to leave because he was disrupting their livelihood. And that was the event with the pigs and the the herd of pigs, and this week we see people rejecting Jesus because of their knowledge of him. They comfortably keep him in a box. Right? Jesus astonished. He was startling. But for them, it didn't result in faith. Right? They're astonished. How are such mighty works done by his hands, right? Like, what? wait. Wait, we've seen him work with wood. Now he's healing people? Right? How's that happen? How are such things done? They're aware of what he's saying, but in their, their minds and their hearts, when they looked at him, they thought they had all the answers. Right? They put him in a box. And um, comfort is not always our friend when it comes to growth, right? They were comfortable and content in their own opinion of Jesus, but it was wrong. Whether the comfort of lifestyle, the comfort of work, the comfort of education, the comfort of opinion, rest assured, when it comes to our walk with God, comfort is not the goal. Knowing God and worshiping God is the goal, right? Now, we have to, to step back for a minute and say, really, life, man, we strive to be comfortable, you know, if you, if you think about it, your body doesn't really tell you when you're uncomfortable, right? I mean, it doesn't tell you when you are comfortable. It tells you when you are uncomfortable. Right? So you know when you're uncomfortable, you, you instinctively, I've got to make a change to get comfortable a little bit, right? But you don't sit around thinking, well, I'm comfortable. <laughs> right? It's not telling us that. It's not giving us that feedback. It's giving us the feedback of uncomfortable, and so we shy away from it. But God, when he stretches us and grows us, he's not just fighting comfort, but he's drawing us closer to him. And so Jesus, in this time when he's teaching and he's working these miracles among those who have been around him, he's trying to draw them to him. Right? But sometimes we put our comfort up there, and it, it breeds complacency. And that's evident. Here in this passage, the people complacently concede that Jesus is teaching powerfully and doing mighty works, but in their complacency, they're not asking the important question of why. Why is Jesus teaching this way? Why is Jesus doing these things? It's a little more scientific in their thinking. How did this happen? Where did it come from? Right? based here in this world and not going after the why question that Jesus wanted them to get at. They placed Jesus among humanity like he's 
found some secret source for this power, right? Like it's when I, when I was growing up and the steroids era hit baseball, right? Some heroes were all of a sudden just hitting home runs like crazy, just multiplying their numbers. And before long, we're like, how'd they get this power? And then we learn, right? We just assume that it's got steroids or some other aid going on. But God gets to the why, beyond the how. As a church, we're focused on transforming the heart, and getting to the heart involves this why question. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he teach these things and heal people? Why does he raise the dead and drive out demons? That's a transformative question that those comfortable with Jesus who knew him from childhood did not ask about him as the Savior. But it's the question we must face, right? And it goes up against our comfort level. In the end, they re- rejected him, and rejection is the end. Unbelief is death. The Bible teaches that we're spiritually dead in sin, right? Dead people don't grow. Dead people don't grow. They decay. But God, being rich in mercy, demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And dying for us, Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross. This is the why. This is why he was teaching the way he was teaching. And this is why he was doing the miracles he was doing. He was showing a better way and showing that he is the Savior. And three days after his death, Jesus was raised to life, proving the power of God, who is eternally just and the justifier. The perfect Savior took all our sin and gives us his righteousness. Right? You can have new life in Christ by God's grace through faith. Right? Just trusting Jesus. And that results in a transformation. But here... They didn't seek that transformation. They were just, how's he doing this? Where's he getting this power? It was a lack of faith and unbelief. So Jesus leaves his hometown and goes out among the villages. Right? Goes to people that are receiving. I think uh, God stretches us, and we should just, as a reminder, remember that when we just rest in comfort, We're tempted to take our eyes off of Jesus. We're tempted to start trusting the things of the world because we're comfortable. So we've always got to keep our eyes on Jesus, even as as followers of Jesus, as those who have professed faith in Jesus, we've still got to keep our eyes on him. And understand that he will stretch us, but the goal is God himself which is far better than a recliner, right? Far better. So that's the first point. God stretches us. Secondly, we see that God empowers me. God empowers me. He empowers us. Let's look at the next, next set of verses here, verses 7 to 13. He went out among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So, James and John, come here. You guys have authority over unclean spirits. You can heal. Go preach the gospel. Right. Peter, Andrew, right? he's sending them out two by two, and off they go. 
he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear their sandals and not put on two tunics. It's not even a change of clothes. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus empowers us. God empowers us. He sent them out with authority and power. Now, there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of imagery, right? He sends them out, and he's saying, don't take a change of clothes, just take your sandals. It's a reminder that in the Old Testament, when God called his people out of slavery in Egypt, they were enslaved, and then they marched out through the wilderness, and it took decades to go and establish Israel as a, as a nation. They were a people, but it took decades to establish them as a nation. In that time... Their clothes didn't wear out. God preserved them. He gave them food. And we're going to see a continuation of this imagery of the Exodus a little bit later in the chapter. But that picture for them is also, it's Jesus calling them back like, God called us out and nothing wore out. Right? He called us out to follow him. So it's a look back at what God has done and calling them forward. So now you guys go out, drive out the demons, Heal the sick. Don't take anything with you. Right? So when, when uh, one of my kids is going out, first thing I say, do you have money? <laughs> right? In case you need it. Right? Now, life's great. Do you have a phone? Right? Do you have a phone? You can call me. When I was a kid, it was, do you have a quarter? Right? You're going on a long run, do you have a quarter? You're going to get stuck somewhere and have to call home and I'll have to come get you. Right? My dad tells the story for him, it was, do you have a dime in your pocket? Because that's all that a phone call costs, right? But we're sending out with all these things. Jesus is saying, just take a staff. and Go out and expand the kingdom of God. And preach the good news. Right? He's empowering them. And in that process, he's pulling them away from, from the things of life. Right? It's not about clothes. It's not about having extra long. It's not about having two pair of shoes, right? It's about me empowering you to go. That's good news, that God empowers us. When we lived in, in Rhode Island, we lived in Providence, and there were two women who showed up in our city who took this passage very literally. They showed up and, and began ministering on the street. Um, they st- they stayed with uh, friends of ours in our church. They just walked into the city. They had gone from, from village to village and town to town and city to city from New York, from like Albany, New York. Got all the way to Providence, Rhode Island, just following this, right? It was kind of uh, shocking for me, right? Um, but they actually had a fruitful ministry. Now, it's important to remember that Jesus is giving this instruction to the 12. And so those of you that are going on business trips this week, pack some toiletries. Your co-worker's going to want you to wear your deodorant. You know, pack all those things, right? But the teaching for us in this passage is a reminder that it's God who empowers us. 
we can spend a lot of time gathering up everything we think we need to accomplish something, and there is, there is legitimacy to that, but when it comes to the kingdom of God and the mission of God, it's the work of God. And we've got to keep that focus first and foremost. Right? It doesn't mean we don't plan. It doesn't mean we don't have a strategy, because Jesus very much had a plan and a strategy sending them out here. But it re- reminds us that we commit all those plans even as a church, we commit our plans this year to the Lord, right? That he would empower us to accomplish his will. Right? So <coughs> the reaction in Nazareth was one of we keep our comfort and reject Jesus. The reaction of the 12 is we leave our comfort and follow Jesus, right? And they go out empowered on this mission. Now this part about shaking the dust off. Right? If you're not received, shake the dust off your feet. In that time, when a religious person would go into the temple of God, they would shake the dust off their feet because they're going into holy ground from unholy ground. Right? And so now, when he's saying, when you leave that place and they haven't received you, you shake the dust off your feet, holiness hasn't come there. Right? They've rejected the Spirit of God. They've rejected the kingdom of God. Right? And so it's a final demonstration. Even in their actions, they're presenting a last chance of hope. Like, there is a way. Follow us. Come on. Follow, right? God expands his kingdom through his people. He's using people to send his message out. He empowers people to do kingdom work. God empowers us. So maybe today you need to take some time and look at your life and simplify and remove some non-essentials that may be taking you away from Jesus and refocus on Jesus and his work. Remember last week, the sower and the seeds? It's real easy to be a seed that gets caught in the thorns, right? It grows up, but then the cares of the life choke it out and the weeds and the thorns. Jesus is really calling us and challenging us not to go that direction. Right? And I do want to take a moment and just encourage you as a church. Right? I'm, I am proud to be a member of the church on Seven Hills. Right? We're a lean and active body. If you, if you look at the disciples being sent out, they were sent out lean and mean on a mission, right? Don't take anything with you, just go, right? And uh, we're pretty lean and mean and active as a body. There's adults this weekend spending time with youth uh, doing kingdom work, right? Many of you arrive here early on Sundays or come during the week to prepare. Um, So often, so many of you just jump in and and do what needs to be done for the kingdom. Uh, Preparing lessons, reaching out to people who need encouragement, praying for friends and family members, caring for the kids. God is using you. Let's remember it's him that empowers us to do this work and stay focused there. Now that does not always mean that it will go well or easy when we obey. Right? So there's this, we're coming to this interjection, verses 14 to 29, that gives us uh, the end of the life of John the Baptist. Right? So remember the disciples gone out two by two, now good things are happening all over. People are being healed, people coming to follow the kingdom. This is, Jesus is no longer an isolated event. 
he has now reached the top levels of government. They know about him. And they're wondering what's going on. So let's pick it up in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Right, so this is the king saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. The guy I beheaded, he's raised from the dead. This is the leader making a statement about who Jesus is. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. In other words, Herod had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Of all the things, right? Of all the, just a little, of all the things you could have, really? Right? Of all the things. Half the kingdom. All right, all right, let's get back into it. The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So John had so spoken to Herod that now that Jesus is doing all this, Herod can't get past what he did to John. And he's thinking, John John the Baptist was raised from the dead. He's coming back, right? Like He's troubled in his mind about what's going on. John the Baptist ended up in prison for his faithfulness to the message and word of God. He didn't shy away from the truth, and people hated it. He called out the sexual behavior of the leader of his time. He found himself in prison for it. And it's a reminder, the truth can be tough to hear and unpopular with some, and there can be consequences. But this is the third growth point. God stays with me when people don't. God stays with me when people don't. It's a growth point of faith to live in this truth. Obedience to Christ will be hard and there may result in suffering in your lifetime. The Bible doesn't promise an easy life, 
the Bible promises a full life. This record of the end of John the Baptist's life confronts us head on. It almost could be written today, right? There's sexual immorality. There's exploitation of the vulnerable and the young. There's uh, parental manipulation, using a child to achieve their own ends. There's dysfunctional marriage. And in the end, the righteous man is executed. Friends, since the first sin against God, This world has not been our home. This is not how it was meant to be. How it is is not what it's going to be. This is why Jesus came. To seek and save what was lost. To bring it back. As great as some days are, as we follow Christ, other days are going to be tough. Right? We live in a time when death reigns. Appetites run wild and people abuse people. Right? But as we grow and as we work to advance the kingdom, it's a reminder to live by faith that God stays with us even when people don't. Right? The only person protecting John the Baptist at that time was Herod. The only person protecting him. And then Herod abandoned him. The church, we are the body of Christ. We stay with each other. right? Just like John the Baptist's disciples came to get his body, we stay with each other to the end. Herod was fearful, not faithful. He pursued unrighteousness and abandoned John, but John's disciples came and even cared for his body. And friends, it's just a reminder, just a glimpse. Uh, some, someday we need to come back to this passage, and, and a whole sermon's in here, right? But there's just a glimpse here of what's been redeemed so that the pictures the Bible gives of marriage, for instance, is one of this commitment that sticks together to the end, right? That's what the... The goal is that comes out later in the New Testament, this, this lifelong commitment. And the reason that that's a picture of the gospel is because God has made this lifelong commitment to us through his son, and we should reciprocate that lifelong commitment to him. And because he's made that commitment to us, now we can make a lifelong commitment to each other as brothers and sisters. We are forever family, forever, right? And so one practical way to think about it is when you look at this church think about this place and think this is my family this is the body of Christ these are brothers and sisters in Christ with me till the end from cradle to grave this is my place right that kind of commitment Herod didn't see it he got consumed with fear But God sticks with us. John the Baptist, he was not alone. He was with God. So let's pick it up. Verse 30. Next point, God sustains me. So this little interjection about what people were saying about Jesus, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him that all that they had done and taught. 
And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. They've been laboring. They've been working. They haven't had a change of clothes, right? They've been going at it. Jesus says, all right, let's, let's go get some rest by ourselves. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. John, Mark states this over and over. They had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they, they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Right? <laughs> like, I thought we were going to be alone, Jesus. And people ran on foot and beat them there. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give me something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate when were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. When John records this event, he makes it clear that that was just the men. On top of that were the women and children. Right? So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people from five loaves and two fish. This must have been one of the greatest parties ever. Right? Have you ever walked in and thought, are we going to have enough food? Jesus is like, how many of them are there? There's 5,000 people here. How are we going to get food? What do we have? Five loaves, two fish. Okay. Start feeding them. Right? And so off they go. Everybody's eating. Is it going to read? You know, the person in the back, 5,000 people deep, it's like, is there going to be enough? This is hopeless. They see it coming, like, I hope there's enough, right? How much fish do they have up there? And the disciples just keep bringing it and bringing it and bringing it. And there's so much so that there's 12 baskets. So now each disciple has this whole basket of leftovers, more than the, they started with, right? It's a picture of the kingdom starts small and grows big. It's a picture of, of God sustains me. That's a growth point. God sustains us, Right? He sustains me. The disciples were worn out. They were tired. They went to this place to get alone, and the crowd beat them there. Then they had to feed the crowd. The disciples fed them before they fed themselves. Right? Like they're just laying it all out. There's so much, again, there's so much imagery here. The, the sitting down in groups of 50 and 100, it, it, it brings the Jewish reader's mind back again to Exodus and Moses divided the people up into fifties and hundreds so that he could actually solve their problems. They had to set up a system so that they could be judged and God could, could speak to them and, and rule through Moses at that time. And the five, five loaves and the two fish, I'm not big on trying to trace out all the numbers in the Bible, but 
Uh, this one's unique because you have the 12, which is the 12 disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's the foundation of the kingdom. The five and the two, most scholars think, is the, the first five books of the Old Testament which Moses wrote. It was called the Pentateuch. And then the two would be the two stone tablets for the law, right? So this whole idea that this law of God, this, this event that led people out of captivity from Egypt into Israel that everybody thought was the end game was not the end game, but now the end game is here in Jesus. There is deliverance coming in this man. The law will be fulfilled. He will sustain us. Manna from heaven that sustained the people through the Exodus. Now the bread of heaven is here, and he's actually feeding the people. And there's leftovers, and they kept it. It's bread that would not perish. The problem with the manna in the Old Testament is it would perish. It would go bad day after day. But here, they kept it because it's good. God has come, and it's lasting, and it's good, and he sustains us. When you get tired, friends, when you're at the end of your rope, when you're parenting and you're just decided, you've reached that point that I'm going to kill somebody, I don't care who it is, whoever comes in next, right? God sustains us. When you're alone and you just want companionship or you want a friend or you're you're in that place where you think, is this worth living? God sustains. When you're on, a, on an assignment and it's not going well, and the project's not getting done, and every step you take you realize there's only 50 more steps. It's creating new work and it's going to take longer. God sustains us. When you're laboring with a friend, a family member who is hostile towards your faith, and you're praying and you're crying out to God for their salvation, God sustains us. When we're anxious about having enough, God sustains us. This was a party. This was an awesome party. I wonder if there was music. I don't know. But it had to be pretty great. The bread's still coming. The fish is still good. Right? Then he dismisses them and sends his disciples out on a boat. Immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out to sea, and he was alone on land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Yet again, Jesus shows himself and people those close to him are afraid. Right? But immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. 
So I labeled this one, God encourages me. Right? Disciples have gone out obediently. Get in the boat and go, I'm going to go pray, Jesus says. And Jesus spends time alone with his Father, no doubt restoring his own soul and refreshing his body. The disciples, meanwhile, are laboring against the wind. Right? I've never rode Lake Quinsig, but if anybody's done it, if the wind's going the wrong way, I'm sure it's hard. Right? And they're just laboring. And Jesus sees them out there and just goes walking out to them. Now remember again the Exodus. Right? God parted the Red Sea so that his people could walk through it. And now, in this event, God's coming to his people on the sea. Right? He's coming to them. A couple things here. He encourages us, yes. Now, it's the disciples' obedience that's making them work hard. Jesus told them to get in the boat and go, and it's a labor now. But here comes Jesus out to them. They see him. They're terrified. Completely understandable. If you're out on a boat, people should not be walking out there. <laughs> right? If you're on a plane flying, People should not be walking on the wings, right? That's what's going on. And so, yeah, it's completely understandable that they're terrified. And his first words, take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. He encourages us. He's coming. Don't be afraid. But here's the other way he's encouraging them. Remember, these are the 12 that just went out and did great things for the kingdom. Great things. Healing people, casting out demons, preaching the good news. And what's it say about them at the end of this scenario? Their hearts were hard. They were obedient, but they had hard hearts. Brothers and sisters, that can be us. <coughs> Looking obedient, being obedient, but not believing. Right? It can be hard. But Jesus didn't leave them. He, he came to them and was with them, got in the boat with them. Right? He encouraged them with his presence. When we have hard hearts, God doesn't leave us there. But he comes, he pursues. That leads us to our final point, final growth point, understanding that God does not quit. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Friends, God does not quit. He didn't give up. He kept the disciples with him in the work of expanding his kingdom. His work does not end. He's still going. In our day, the kingdom is still going forward. And friends, he's using you. He's using you. As you grow your own growth impacts other people. As your life changes, 
it impacts other people. We had a moment in our growth group this morning, and the statement was made just about sharing our testimonies and, and even having the opportunity to talk about how God has changed us. Our change, the transformation God's done in us, the kingdom work he's done in us, is impacting far more than us. Far more than us. God does not quit. Jesus didn't stop his work. And here's the other thing. He won't stop working and pursuing you. If you find yourself like the disciple this morning with a hard heart, maybe you're hiding something or running from God, take it as an encouragement that Jesus never quits. He will pursue you to the end. He will not quit. And he won't quit in any of us. God's method of growing his kingdom is you and me. He uses people to accomplish his purposes. The world is broken. That's a gentle word for it. What we saw with the death death of John the Baptist and Herod's court there, far beyond broken. But God enters this world to save us and redeem us and bring about change. God stretches, God empowers, God stays with us when people don't, God sustains us, he encourages us, and does not quit. As a closing statement this morning, just if you've been holding out or running from God, after the service, talk to Talk to someone. I'll be out in the lobby. You're more than welcome to talk to me. Maybe you just want prayer for something. I'll be out there. You can talk to me right after the service. But God doesn't quit. You can't outrun him. You can't hide things from him. So turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for not quitting on us but stretching us and growing us. And it's all because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, God, that you have demonstrated your love for us in this. Yes, but also it's all because of this that now we live. And so thank you. Father, we praise your name. Use us this week, Lord, to lead people to Christ and and make disciples advancing your kingdom through us. Jesus' name, amen.